0: In episodes 1 and 2, we discuss what it means for Henry V to be a history play, a play that explores the way history is recounted and recreated, and how the past influences the present. We also discussed the enigmatic character of Henry V, and the truths that discomfort him about status and war. In this episode, we'll look closely at all these issues in three pivotal speeches from the play. Stephen Foley, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Brown University, guides our discussion. Our first speech is the prologue spoken by the chorus to open the play. The chorus describes the historical events that the audience is about to see, apologises that the stage cannot recreate those events in their full splendour, and invites the audience to assist in this historical recreation by imagining a greater spectacle than the actors can present. The chorus also implicitly invites the audience to judge the historical figures in the play in a particularly favourable light.
1: Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles, all the flat, unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object." Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon. Since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million, and let us cipher to this great account on your imaginary forces' work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, whose high upreared and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Into a thousand parts divide one man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them, printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, For 'tis your thoughts that now must deck our king's. Carry them here and there, jumping o'er times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass for the which supply. Admit me, chorus, to this history. Who, prologue-like, your humble patience pray gently to hear, kindly to judge our
2: play. The five choruses are a reminder of the jointly performed work of the theatre and its audience. The first prologue works through a set of imperatives or commands. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention.
0: In classical mythology, the muses were goddesses of learning and the arts, including poetry great epic poems of ancient Greece and Rome, including works that Shakespeare would have studied, traditionally began by invoking the muse to inspire the author's imagination and help them to tell a powerful story. By calling upon a muse of fire here, the chorus frames Henry V as another great epic, an English epic. But the chorus doesn't seek help from the gods alone. He or she also asks for the assistance of the audience in bringing this story to life. Since the stage, this unworthy scaffold, cannot hold the vasty fields of France, the chorus asks the audience to supply imaginatively what the stage cannot supply physically. Let us on your imaginary forces work.
2: It goes from heightened theatrical um, imagination, to the work of the imagination in the minds of the members of the audience. It calls upon the, the audience to allow the theatre to work as a form of multiplication upon the audience's imagination. And here is, is, is where the language of the prologue is working on the figure of arithmetic calculation, It begins with an apology for the theatre being an empty O, a zero, and that it fills in that, that empty zero by multiplying it with the crooked figures, the actors, who swell the stage.
0: If the audience will, into a thousand parts, divide one man, that is, if they imagine that one actor stands for many people, they can thereby create a vast army on the stage. Such an imaginative leap on the part of the audience will enable the play to jump over times, to go back to the past and to thus bring this history to life. The chorus makes its appeal to the audience by addressing them in flattering terms. This prologue was written for The Globe, where Shakespeare's company moved in 1599, the year the play was first performed. The Globe was a round, open-air theatre, referred to in the prologue as This Wooden O, and its audiences would have included people from all social classes. But the chorus addresses them as Gentles all, as though they are all members of the nobility. This anticipates King Henry's own strategy in the play of calling every man in his army gentle and noble. By making it plain that the story relies on its hearers, tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, the chorus highlights one of the play's key themes, the exploration of how history is made. History isn't a straightforward list of objective facts. It's something recreated by later generations as each group tells and retells the story and each retelling carries its own non-neutral judgment of events.
2: Each one of the five choruses invokes the audience as the judge and interpreter of history. In the famous first chorus, he calls upon the audience to piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. So in each one of the choruses, that same kind of contract is renewed, and the audience is reminded that it is in their memories that the moral judgments of history are made Uh, and that history itself is, is shaped.
0: The chorus wants the audience to judge the history of Henry V in a very specific way. When the chorus asks the audience to piece out our imperfections and to kindly judge our play, he's explicitly asking for a generous appraisal of the actors and their production. But implicitly, he may be asking for the same generous judgment to be extended to the historical figures the actors represent. Because throughout the play, the chorus asks the audience to celebrate those figures.
2: One of the things that the the five choruses do is to swell the rhetoric and create a sense of heroic appreciation for Henry. I think the, the play also asks that we be particularly aware that remembering the past is a, a, a form of, of creating or recreating it.
0: The chorus knows that the life of Henry V, as the first folio called the play, will be partly a product of how people remember, imagine and represent him. And so the chorus presents him in carefully selected terms of praise, calling him the mirror of all Christian kings and a royal captain like the sun. But even so, these terms raise questions about who Henry is. In this speech, the chorus celebrates Henry as the warlike Harry who resembles Mars, the god of war. This apparently simple line actually complicates how we think of Henry and what he is like.
2: I think the, the choruses also have poetic interests and, and ambiguities of their own and that there are moments where we can pause upon some of the celebratory rhetoric and and look at how it fails clearly to cohere in that celebration. So I think, for example, of a simple line like the one that gives us our first image of Henry. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars. So what interests me in that line, first, is the collision of the words warlike Harry and like himself. It's an accidental overlap of warlike and like, but it alerts us to the confusing comparison of Harry to himself, which opens up a question about what exactly warlike means. Is he prone to war? When Harry tends to be combative, to be warlike, is he being like himself? What does it mean for a person to be like himself, to to attain his true inner identity, to have gone from surface to core? So even in that sort of throwaway phrase, which we don't even pause to think about, this is a minor index of the ultimate uninterpretability of Henry as as a character.
0: When we hear that King Henry prepares for war like himself, Does this mean he is expressing his real character or is he only expressing something like his real character, not who he actually is? Is the war we're about to see something that Henry wholly embraces or is it only something he accepts with some reluctance as a political expedient? A similar question is suggested by the phrase, assume the port of Mars. To assume means to take upon oneself or to put on, as you would put on a suit of clothes. Here we imagine Henry putting on the appearance of the god of war. But does this appearance reflect his nature or conceal it? Is he assuming his true colours or a disguise? Later in the play, Henry will disguise himself under a borrowed cloak. When he rallies his men to attack Harfleur, Henry tells them to disguise fair nature with hard-favoured rage and to lend the eye a terrible aspect, as though the warlike qualities of anger and ferocity should only be adopted temporarily when needed and then set aside. Henry himself assumes different roles throughout the play, from the undaunted leader to the apprehensive foot soldier and the inarticulate lover. Which of these roles express his real character – do any of them? The play continually presents us with the question of what Henry's true nature is and even as the chorus celebrates him it cannot help asking that question as well. Our next speech comes from Act 4, the night before Agincourt. Henry has just come away from talking in disguise with the foot soldiers Williams, Court and Bates who fear they might die in the battle the next day. In this privately spoken speech, Henry claims that the only thing that separates the king from common men like these is ceremony, the superficial adornments that go with office. But ceremony, he claims, is all but useless. It cannot heal illness or injury, and the price the king pays for ceremony is loss of sleep and rest and peace. This speech reveals some of Henry's insights about his royal position – but it also reveals some of his blind spots.
3: what infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy, and what have kings that privates have not to save ceremony save general ceremony, and what art thou, thou idle ceremony? What kind of God art thou that sufferst more of mortal griefs than do thy worshippers? What are thy rents? What are thy comings in? O oh, ceremony, show me but thy worth! What is thy soul of adoration? Art thou aught else? But place, degree, and form, creating awe and fear in other men, Wherein thou art less happy being feared than they in fearing. What drink'st thou oft instead of homage sweet but poisoned flattery? Oh, be sick great greatness, and bid thy ceremony give thee cure. Thinkst thou the fiery fever will go out with titles blown from adulation? Will it give place to flexure and low bending? Canst thou, when thou commandst the beggar's knee, command the health of it? No, thou proud dream that placed so subtly with a king's repose. I am a king that find thee, and I know 'tis not the balm, the sceptre, and the ball, the sword, the mace, the crown imperial, the intertissued robe of gold and pearl, the façade title running for the king, the throne he sits on, nor the tide of pomp that beats upon the high shore of this world. No, not. All these thrice gorgeous ceremony, not all these, laid in bed majestical, can sleep so soundly as the wretched slave, who, with a body filled and vacant mind, gets him to rest. Crammed with distressful bread, never sees horrid night, the child of hell. But like a lackey, from the rise to set, Sweats in the eye of Phoebus, And all night sleeps in Elysium. Next day after dawn doth rise, And help Hyperion to his horse, And follow so the ever-running year With profitable labour to his grave. And, but for ceremony, such a wretch, winding up days with toil and nights with sleep, had the forehand and vantage of a king. The slave, a member of the country's peace, enjoys it. But in gross brain, little wots what watch the king keeps to maintain the peace. Whose hours the peasant's best advantages.
2: The king here asked the question What infinite heart's ease must kings neglect that private men enjoy? So here we're being invited to behold the inner workings of Henry's consciousness and to see how it feels to to be a king. And indeed we see the emptiness which a king feels being a wise and politic man in the ceremonial obeisance which is given to him.
0: We spoke in episode two about how history and the past follow people into the present. In this speech, we see how Henry has been shaped by his past, knowingly or unknowingly, as we hear echoes from the play's prequel, Henry IV., When he inherited the throne from his father, King Henry IV, he also inherited a set of burdens that his father lamented using similar imagery. King Henry IV once wondered why sleep visited the loathsome beds of the lowly, but not the kingly couch. He exclaimed, "'How many thousand of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep?' So, too, Henry V claims here that the king in bed majestical cannot sleep so soundly as the wretched slave. Henry also echoes the man who was almost a surrogate father to him back in the taverns of Eastcheap. The rascally Falstaff questioned the value of honour in terms very similar to how Henry questions the value of ceremony here. Can honour set to a leg? No. "'Or an arm? No. Honour hath no skill in surgery,' said Falstaff. "'So, too, Henry asks bitterly of ceremony. "'Canst thou, when thou commandst the beggar's knee, command the health of it?' "'Perhaps Henry learned from his one-time companion to be sceptical of royal ideology,' of claims that a man really is nobler or superior to others just because his society has agreed to treat him as though he is. But if Henry drew some useful lessons from Falstaff, he's failed to learn from the common soldiers he's just met. Bates, Court and Williams are private men, but they have none of the infinite heart's ease that Henry ascribes to them. They spend the night fearing for their lives, not sleeping in Elysium. And Williams reminds Henry that the king does have something that privates do not, something more substantial than ceremony, the option of saving his life. Poor, ordinary men cannot preserve themselves by becoming prisoners for ransom. Kings can. It was Williams' mention of ransom that made Henry so angry with him, Perhaps this is why Henry forgets or suppresses his awareness of his royal privileges in this speech. He finds it too uncomfortable to confront the real differences that set him in advantage over his men. His public rhetoric is always trying to make those differences disappear.
2: What interests um, me about the speech is that I think it lapses into self-pity And Henry makes a spectacle of himself as all alone on the throne with no friends, no buddies to keep him company, because a king can have no friends. And to me, the giveaway in the speech about Henry's pride and his inability truly to think like a common person is in the shift in the rhetoric from the initial representation of the difference between king and private uh, to the rhetoric of master and slave. Henry is asking for sympathy for the king, but he can't do that without simultaneously putting down the feelings and the thoughts of those beneath him. So he cannot imagine what it is to be a king without giving us his version of what it means to be a slave. And I, I think of these, these lines in particular in relation to the famous distinction between uh, master and slave that Hegel makes and that W.E. Du Bois picks up on. Both those men, in different ways, argued that those who are subject to power are aware both of what it means to be subject to power and of what the, the king Does in exerting that power. But the king is blind, the master is blind always to what it feels like to be a slave because he sees the slave only as the creature of his will.
0: There is indeed an odd incompatibility in the terms that Henry uses to describe the ordinary person's experience. On the one hand, he uses colloquial English terms from a very low register that tend to disparage the commoner, terms such as wretched slave, lackey, crammed with bread, and gross brain. On the other hand, he incorporates learned references to classical mythology that elevate the common person's experience, but that are also quite removed from it. Hyperion, the sun, Phoebus, the sun-God, Elysium, where the souls of ancient heroes rested after death, these noble-sounding descriptors romanticized the experience of poor labourers and fail to recognise the very real burdens and anxieties that beset their lives. One reason that Henry used to pass time with the commoners in Eastcheap was to learn their language. I can drink with any tinker in his own language, he proclaimed in Henry the IV. But if he's mastered the skill of talking with common men, he fails here to feel with common men.
2: We see a lack of understanding when he meets real resistance from Williams about the differences between a king and a common person. At the very moment when you would expect Henry to be revealing himself and his inner thoughts, we see him almost self-pitying about the responsibilities of what it means to be a king, to have to bear the scepter and the crown. To me, this, this is a really revealing moment where an overly sentimental, self-indulgent king reveals the shallowness of his, of his core being, his inability to think outside of uh, the privilege that power affords him.
0: This speech comes from Act 4, just before the climactic battle between the English and the French at Agincourt. The odds against the English are dire. The French outnumber them five to one. Lord Westmoreland wishes they had more English soldiers. Henry overhears his remark and responds with these words to inspire his disheartened troops. He invokes honour, brotherhood and historical memory, weaving all these themes together with such stirring, skilful rhetoric that even the speech's contradictions and over idealizations cannot undo its power.
4: If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men the greater share of honour. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It earns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honour, I am the most offending soul alive. No, faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England." God's peace I would not lose so great an honour as one man more, methinks, would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmorland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called... The feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbours and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget yet. All shall be forgot, but he'll remember, with advantages, what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups, freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by. From this day to the ending of the world but we in it shall be remembered we few we happy few we band of brothers for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother be he ne'er so vile this day shall gentle his condition and gentlemen in England now abed shall think <laughs> themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Here we see Henry
2: summon together his troops by suggesting how they will be remembered to have fought valiantly in this battle. When those who've stayed at home will be forgotten, the memory of those who fought with him at Ashen Court will be held in the hearts and minds of the English people for, forever. All the soldiers who fought... Commoners and nobility will be on the same plane. But what interests me is the holiday spirit and the, the spirit of tragic risk and potential loss, and banding together as brothers in order to enter into the battlefield.
0: This speech, the climactic moment of Henry's political rhetoric in the play, deploys some of his key strategies for winning his soldiers' hearts and uniting them together. At Harfleur, Henry rallied his men by making them feel part of a single unified band in which differences of status disappeared. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, he urged, promising... There is none of you so mean and base that hath not noble lustre in your eyes. Henry uses a similar tactic here. He tells every soldier that this day will gentle his condition, while gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here. The repeated word gentle neatly conveys the idea of a status switch. His soldiers' sacrifice, Henry claims, will trump their status as commoners and make them all nobles together. Conversely, men at home who are aristocrats by birth will lose their status when compared with Henry's brave and noble soldiers. The pronouns Henry uses also forge this sense of unity. When speaking in his most formal official capacity as king Henry uses the first person plural the royal we but in this speech Henry starts off talking with the singular I as though he is not the king but is instead one more soldier like the rest I would not lose so great an honour he says So when he starts using the plural we and us, it's clear that he isn't referring to himself in his elevated status as king, but rather to the army as a whole, emphasising how much he is part of this group. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. And he ends the speech with an effective repetition of that pronoun, celebrating any that fought with us upon St Crispin's Day. This final line of the speech, like the three lines before it, is in perfect iambic pentameter. That fought with us upon St Crispin's day. The regular rhythm pushing smoothly ahead to end on a stressed syllable, day, lends a sound of confidence and credibility to Henry's words. Meanwhile, his repetition of Crispian, Feast of Crispian, name of Crispian, tomorrow is St Crispian, creates a growing sense of drama. The name of Crispian, invoked again and again, seems to grow in symbolic power with each repetition until this climactic final phrase, upon St Crispin's Day. Ironically, the feast day of the saints wasn't associated with the kind of epic historical importance that Henry evokes here, it represented the sort of common, popular revelry we associate with the Eastcheap characters.
2: The premise of the speech is a funny one because it turns a trivial holiday and two silly saints into this national feast of epic celebration. Crispin and Crispinian were two Roman missionaries in Gaul who worked um, as shoemakers, and they became the patron saint of shoemakers... And they were associated not with particularly saintly qualities, but with a holiday. So Shakespeare is taking an available holiday, a feast, a comic occasion, and he's transforming it into the vehicle for an heroic celebration. Henry returns this moment of danger by projecting a future moment of peace and celebration and erasing the actual field on on which... He and and his men stand. So the Battle of Agincourt did take place on St. Crispin's Day. But the the speech is a reminder of the triviality of that holiday. And for me, it's also an image of the failure of a play to bring into balance, ever, ever truly to band together all of the contradictions that come inevitably in the theater of war.
0: Henry's speech with its dramatic repetitions, beautifully balanced phrases and carefully structured climaxes can make us overlook some of those contradictions, but it cannot fully resolve or erase them. The speech is actually premised on the contradiction that Henry rouses his men to fight by invoking a scene far away from the battlefield years after the fighting is done. He invites them to imagine returning safe home and then recalling this story in old age. He evokes the yearly vigil of St Crispian, the memory that shall last to the ending of the world, all of which removes the men's focus from the battle that is minutes away. And he begins this evocation by saying, he that outlives this day will stand or tiptoe when this day is named temporarily ignoring the fact that some will not outlive this day. Henry describes the festive comic occasion of a feast when men will enjoy flowing cups, but it is blood that will flow today. Before any comic celebration will come tragedy, as many men will shed their blood with Henry today and some will inevitably die. Henry's speech diverts attention from some of those difficult truths about war, from the waste and desolation, the heady murder, spoil and villainy that he himself described before Harfleur. But the speech also makes some accurate prophecies. Crispin, Crispian shall ne'er go by, but we in it shall be remembered. Englishmen will stand on tiptoe when this day is named and rouse themselves at the name of Crispian. Thanks to the power of Henry's rhetoric, he and his men have been remembered for centuries, albeit in fictionalised form. And this speech has proved its power to rouse later generations too. In 1942, the year after Britain emerged from the intensive German bombing campaign known as the Blitz, Shakespearean actor Laurence Olivier delivered the St Crispin's Day speech on a radio programme to help inspire the beleaguered country. Olivier was a friend of Winston Churchill, whose government asked Olivier to produce films to boost British morale, including a full-length version of Henry V in 1944, dedicated to the commandos and airborne troops of Great Britain.
2: Olivier's version of the play begins with this beautiful panorama of, of London. It's based on the maps of the time, and it shows the Thames full of ships, and the houses on both banks of the Thames, the Houses of Parliament. And then the, the camera slowly focuses in on the playhouses on the south bank of the Thames. And this panorama was actually created from a model of London. And the irony here is that the south side of London in 1945 was heavily bombed, and the area around the globe was really a shell Olivier creates this celebration of England and of the globe and of the history that the globe is is producing because he is looking for a, a compensatory moment of heroic achievement in a, in a time when when England was was threatened. This film was produced before the the Norman invasion, so Olivier's film is less questioning of Henry as a hero, and it is more full of the glorification of war.
0: Olivier later said that he didn't think that we could have won the war without Henry's words somewhere in our soldiers' hearts. Churchill's affirmation that never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few echoes Henry's famous line from this speech, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. During World War II, this play about how history is made and used was itself used to try and direct the course of history. But we should note, too, that Shakespeare does not let the speech's inspired certainty go wholly unquestioned. Henry speaks movingly of how each veteran will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, ''These wounds I had on Crispin's day.'' But near the end of the play, we witness the braggart pistol being beaten by the Welsh Captain Fluellen, and saying, Patches will I get onto these cudgelled scars and swear I got them in the Gallia Wars. He will claim the scars he received as a punishment for his insubordination are really a token of his bravery on that fabled St Crispin's Day. Even Henry himself admits for a moment that the soldiers' war stories may not be entirely truthful. He'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day.
2: The most explicit calls to the process of memorialization in history are in the St Crispin speech, which is an appeal to how we who fought together this day will be remembered. Memory... And this play is a form of memory, is the only way in which history is sustained.
0: Henry creates his own vision of a future history to inspire his men, and it is undoubtedly effective. It's also subject to some inaccuracy, exaggeration and distortion. In the play's opening lines, the chorus acknowledged how impossible it is to offer an entirely accurate recreation of the past and urged the audience to piece out our imperfections with your thoughts. Here, Henry invites his soldiers and his listeners to do the same, to frame and remember this occasion in the most idealised possible way. And his invitation is so beautifully and skillfully framed that perhaps in spite of ourselves,
5: we can hardly refuse. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deere. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Anton Lesser, for the chorus, oh for a muse of fire. Ruth Page, for Henry V, what infinite hearts ease. Patterson Joseph, for Henry V, if we are marked to die. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare after all. Michael Neal, Henry V, a modern perspective. Norman Rabkin, Shakespeare and the Problem of Meaning, Emma Smith, Approaching Shakespeare, Henry V, and the following editions of Henry V, the 1995 Arden Shakespeare, the 2010 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com Shakespeare.